And now, Dan Apples connecting the dots. If tomorrow all the things were gone, I'd work for all my life. And I had to start again with just my children and my wife. I'd thank my lucky stars to be living here today. Where the flag still stands for freedom and they can't take that away. here today with my very good friend, Dr. Harry Buyens, and we're going to be talking about how to stop the New World Order and all the crap that's going on around the world, and a lot of it really started to happen uh, in South Africa starting almost, uh, well, actually it was 30 years ago, uh, when the ANC was handed South Africa. Now, they weren't the first. Zimbabwe um, was the first. Uh, you know, what used to be Rhodesia uh, under Ian Smith was turned over a few years earlier, and uh, needless to say, Robert Mugabe turned that into the biggest mess uh, in human history. So we're going to be talking about South Africa. It's the canary in the coal mine, but we're also going to be talking about how this whole paradigm shift in everything from nationalism to internationalism has happened over the last 30 years and how people are waking up to it. And of course, uh, Michael was talking about it in the last hour. People are waking up and people are starting to say, hey, wait a minute, this isn't what we signed up for. We didn't sign up for our country to be absorbed under this global technocracy. Uh, so we're going to be talking about that today. Harry, uh, my friend, thank you for joining us at this early hour, and uh, welcome to the podcast. Well, thanks for having me here. Well, you look bright bright, and uh, ready to go. That's good. Uh, you, we, since we talked the last time, we did t- talk a little bit uh, yesterday or the day before, but... Uh, you know, there's been so much happening, and I have to tell you, it, 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 you everything that you've talked about uh, for the last five or six or seven years about uh, South Africa was only the first uh, first indication of what they had planned worldwide. Guess what? It's all happening. Uh, you look clairvoyant, my friend. Well, no, it's 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 not clairvoyance. I keep telling folks, look, um, I can I can prove that I'm not particularly intelligent because I 
competed against my wife at university and she always beat me. So I'm not the cleverest guy in the box. Uh, number two, I have no special powers. I was never bitten by a radioactive spider or anything like that. Well, I, I was stung by two scorpions, but uh, I don't think that counts. So uh, I'm not aware of any superpowers or any particular clairvoyance. The only thing is I happen to grow up in South Africa, and uh, it's pretty obvious that uh, we were targeted by the left of Western civilization pretty much from a few years before my birth. Mm -hmm. uh, it took me a while to realize that, but uh, it goes way back uh, in quickly looking at what I've got in the way of visuals here. I, I picked up on a little thing by Mark Twain, where even he climbed into us uh, in the oh, late yeah. 19th century. He was not exactly a great stand-up paragon of conservatism. Um but, uh, you know, even he elected to denigrate us. Mm -hmm. And uh, the Western media did a complete job on us from around about 1948. Not that we didn't deserve some of it. But, um, you know, we have been turned into muck and slush to a degree that's infinitely greater than what's ever been done to the Germans. Mm -hmm. That's a fair statement. You know, uh, so no ocean could ever wash us off after what the media did to us, what people have been teaching their children in schools about us, which is just a simple pack of BS. You know, I'd, even a Brazilian kid, uh, a, a visitor to my house once here in Canada told me they were taught at school that white and black people walk on opposite sides of the street in South Africa. Well, I don't know. I grew up there and I lived there for 45 years. I never saw that. I'm not sure where he lived in South Africa. When I asked him, he said he'd never been there. But that's what folks are taught. Mm-hmm. I had well, to go to I had to go to Philadelphia before a young lady told me no if a black man walks on the other side of the street she crosses the street to walk on the opposite side. So I first heard that in the US. Never saw wow. it in South Africa. And I can go on and on and on and on. The point is we were targeted and a comprehensive job was done on us to the point where uh, it's taken as gospel. And now my comment to folks in the U.S. is, are you starting to feel it? Mm -hmm. You know, I've lived with that all my life. I've never known anything other than this constant attack, denigration, and, you know, being painted all kinds of shades that don't fit us. And now I'm watching it happening in the U.S. and and. I don't know. Um, it's being done to my friends. I resent that. But to the media who happen to sometimes have the wrong skin color, mm -hmm. there's a degree of schadenfreude on my part. I have to confess. I wonder how they like it. Mm -hmm. Well, you're, you know, Harry, you're a student of history. You yeah. lived in South Africa. Your book, Amabulu, 
basically chronicles from 1652 forward um, the entire history of South Africa from the very, very beginning when the first uh, settlers landed at the Cape. And um, I, I want you, if you would, please uh, share what it was like uh, for you as a child and uh, as you became an adult, went through the university system and so forth, what was South Africa like from the time that you were a very small child? And how has it changed? And we've got plenty of time to talk about that. Well, let me go back just a little bit before I appeared on the scene. Um, if you can imagine... Uh, territory that looks something like around a uh, lander in Wyoming. Mm -hmm. I've been there, so I can compare. If you were to take lander Wyoming and you turn the countryside into central Nevada, that, in other words, you keep the mountains of Wyoming and you give the vegetation of Nevada. That's where my folks originated from. They were dirt poor. My father was a ganger on the railways initially. In other words, he removed the uh, shrubbery around the railway line, and he, he, then he got a bit of a promotion. He became the guy that would patrol the line between two sidings and then put what I think you folks call it uh, a torpedo, we call it a detonator, would put it on the rail of the train air to stop, so it would run over that, explode it, and that's the signal for the driver to stop in case something's wrong with the line, right? So mm -hmm. that was his job. My mother similarly was a farm girl and uh, left school at the age of 15 and um, went to work in a little shop next to the railway line on a farm. And eventually they met each other, got married and moved to the great metropolis of Port Elizabeth, the southernmost city of South Africa. And uh, they were really poor. They, they rented uh, basically three rooms from a family. There was no indoor toilet. Uh, that was outside. And... Uh, there was no kitchen, so my father changed a aviary, a birdcage. He changed that into a kitchen for my mother. So when little Harry arrived, that's what he was born into. Okay? And um, at that point, uh, well, uh, folks tell me it's weird, but uh, I have memories from when I was somewhere around two years old. I remember I had a, a pet chicken that followed me everywhere. One day, my father took me and walked me around, which to me seemed like an awfully long distance. Uh, he had me on his arm and he carried me for a long distance, which subsequently turns out to be just a dog leg around the block, uh, to this place that he bought for us. Okay, and... Uh, Keep in mind that I have been asked here in Canada, Harry, how large was your slave mansion? Okay. And uh, that caused me to fly to South Africa to go and take a picture of the house I grew up in. Okay. And uh, 
maybe maybe it would help if I actually put on the screen that house I was born into. Okay. Sounds you know, Harry, it sounds an awful lot like the house I was born into. I was uh being an entitled white person, I was born into that same uh high level of opulence. Yes, yes, you exactly. Know. You know, so for all the people who think that that's how it works, I'd uh, like them to feast on this incredible slave mansion. So now I just got to say share screen, I believe. Mm -hmm. That's it. So let's see. And then I say screen one. Now, how do I tell it to There share? you go. That's it. We see your slave mansion. Are you mansion. seeing it? Yeah, mm -hmm. that's the slave mansion. Mm -hmm. Okay. And uh, as you know, you know, we were supposed to have uh, lots of slaves and uh, and that must be the reason why my mother helped to mix up the concrete for that lintel across that veranda in front of the house. Mm -hmm. So my dad put up that whole front section there, including making the lintel, which my mother helped with. And then he put on that very roof that you see there. That picture was taken in 2012. The roof was put on around 1957. Mm -hmm. Okay. Because it leaked like a sieve. Mm -hmm. At least that one had the bathroom inside the house. That was the first time we had that. Okay. So you wanted to know what was South Africa like for a white kid? That's what I was basically born into, actually born into something that was half of that and rented from someone else. Then we got that house. We were going up in the world, man. I mean, we'd gotten to the slave mansion. For, for Forgive my cynicism and sarcasm. Mm -hmm. um, but that's what I knew. I would walk to school, which is off to the left from what you see there, and uh, the significant thing for me is you'll notice that the picture sort of looks down somewhat from high up, higher up. That's because I'm standing on what I refer to as the uh, 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 grassy knoll. Mm. Yes, a title I very specifically chose for reason of American history. Mm -hmm. So uh, she took me to the grassy knoll shortly after we'd moved into that house and she pointed out um, a moving star to me which i thought was so cool um stop sharing i thought that was so cool because um she explained to me that uh, people called scientists put it up there and from that moment on, I no longer wanted to be a railway engineer like my father wanted me to be. I didn't want to be a farmer like my grandfather was. Um, well, he wasn't really the farmer. He was a foreman on a farm. And uh, I decided I wanted to be a scientist, whatever that is. It's the guys who put that thing up there. Mm -hmm. That must but have been Sputnik, huh? Yeah, yeah. And it was Sputnik. And uh, I noticed that my parents were quite scared about all that. They referred to Sputnik, and then it, they were clearly scared, and I asked them what that was about, and they used the word Russians. Now, I, I didn't understand whether Russians were things that kind of had eight legs like a scorpion 
or whether it was like a snake or what it was, it took me a while to figure out they were other humans. Kind of, kind of like Afrikaners, huh? Yeah. <laughs> <You know. laughs> so that caused me some significant head scratching. But by then I was getting on to be six years old. Now where my life was different from most in, in South Africa is that my mother worked for a book distribution company, actually a magazine distribution company, I should say. And uh, they distributed time and life and later Newsweek and things like that. So whatever they couldn't sell, she brought copies home for me because they were allowed to do that. So I got the world news a week late. I had meanwhile gone off to the corner store with my sixpence that I got, which is uh, about a nickel, I guess, and uh, went off to buy a newspaper to learn English because English is not my first language. I'm, I'm a born Afrikaner guy, which means I am roughly 40% Dutch, 30% German, and 25% French, and 5% all sorts. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, my wife, for the record, is half English and half Afrikaans. Mm -hmm. So... I went off to the shop to buy a newspaper to learn to speak English. And uh, it was a source of great mirth to the family when I first tried to understand the word people in English from the newspaper, and I pronounced it poopla. <laughs> because O-E in Afrikaans is O. So it was natural that I would say that. Anyway, a little snippet of human interest along the way of growing up in South Africa. Um, I, I, rem I remember how we turned to the decimal system around 1961 when we became independent. I didn't understand quite what that was about, except that a guy dressed in a top hat came to the school and gave each one of, each one of us a little flag and a little gold-plated little medallion thingamajig and that was supposed to be independence. It meant absolutely zilch to me at the age of six. Okay. But I soon learned what it was about because they explained to me about Britain and being a colony and blah, 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 blah. So I uh, read a lot about that, understood a lot about that, and I was possibly an over- uh, not politicized as in part of politics, but as an in international events, I was over-informed, I think, as a kid, which probably made me paranoid. Um, I, I remember at the time of the Cuban Missile Crisis, I to this day, I can remember how I stood in the kitchen playing with my, uh, in Britain, it would be an airfix model, a model ship that I had built and uh, from a kit, and uh, 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 I stood playing with this thing in the kitchen because the news was all about the uh, 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 the American ships trying to keep the Russians from reaching Cuba. Mm -hmm. So I was playing with my ship in the kitchen, looking out the window. And by that time, I already knew what it looked like in the aftermath of a nuclear war because some of the books my mother brought me went into excruciating and awfully terrible detail on it. 
I was scared as all hell, I can tell you. Okay, I was terrified. I was absolutely terrified. And I stood there watching my family having a barbecue in the backyard. I couldn't understand how they could have a barbecue in the backyard while all of us are supposed to be terrified out of our wits. <laughs> anyway, it turns out later that the way you handle something that you cannot do anything about is, you know, have a beer or do a barbecue. I had to grow up to learn some of that. I thought the job was to be scared and fluff around and do things. Anyway, so very much aware of that kind of thing. Now, the country, it was a place like Canada. Uh, not too surprisingly, I mean, after all, the South African government in the sort of late 40s went off to Canada to study the Bureau of Indian Affairs in Canada to create the South African uh, Department of Bantu Affairs, which is the black people. Canadians don't like being reminded of that, and they scream absolute bloody murder when I mention that point and try to disprove it. But they're named amazingly similar, don't you think? The... Uh, the, the, the way I experienced matters of race is that for a while there, I had a black nanny, which was perfectly fine. I'm, I'm not sure why people make a, an issue out of that sometimes. Um, and the, the black people I had interaction with was the guy who drove a bicycle with a cool box on top selling ice cream. So I would regularly use half my month's allowance to buy one ice cream from him. He was perfectly fine. You know, I'm not sure what all the huff and puff was about at that time. But it is true that in that picture I showed you earlier, the black people lived uh, in the distance on the horizon there in a number of suburbs. And we lived in, you, you saw the slave mansion. We, we lived there. Okay. So was there separation? Yes, that started in 1948 with a bunch of laws that somebody unfortunately named apartheid. The fact that other places have the same without having laws uh, doesn't seem to ever get mentioned. But uh, nevertheless, somebody in South Africa had the galactically stupid idea of giving all of this a policy name, and that is stuck, and they called it apartheid, which doesn't mean hate and apart. The suffix H-E-I-D simply means the same as N-E-S-S -S in English, apartness. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, so there's no there's no deeper meaning there. Um, so I grew up with that, but wasn't too exposed to some of the nastier issues around that. Um, went to school, uh, moved to another suburb eventually. We were going up a little tad in the world. And uh, one day my father brought home a ship's captain, a British guy. And when he took him away, he came back that night, sat down at dinner table, and my father spoke a lot about this gentleman. And he said, this British ship's captain had said that we were lower middle class. Mm -hmm. 
I had no idea what that meant. Finally, I learned one day that the Brits divided people into classes and that lower middle class was not exactly the upper echelon of British society. But okay, so I'm proudly lower middle class. Mm-hmm. Okay. Me too. Uh, I ended up the first guy in our family to ever go to university. I'm the first of all the cousins to ever go to university. Uh, Went and studied to get a PhD in physics, which is what I have. Ended up working first at the university and then in R&D. Spent time at IBM's research labs in New York at a rather interesting time. And uh, went, uh, got kind of homesick and went back to South Africa in 1980. Stayed there until 2000. So spent 20 years in South Africa. And then moved to Canada, where I've now been for 23 years. Mm-hmm. Okay. So if you wish, it's like 25 years in South Africa, one year in New York, 20 years in South Africa, 23 years in Canada. Um, and as I keep repeating to folks when I get into a hall of Americans of different skin tone, hi, guys, very interesting audience tonight, but I'm the only African-American in the room. <laughs> That's true. All the other darker people are black Americans, and the lighter ones are probably white Americans, but I'm the only actual African American here. I live on the continent of America, and I was born in Africa and spent close to half my life there. So anybody want to take issue with that? Fire. Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk about what... Uh... Life was like when you moved back in 19, yeah. 1980, okay. uh, living under apartheid, because it's gotten an, an incredibly bad name yeah. by, as you say, the fact that, uh, you know, the, the media has been the primary purveyor of information about South Africa. Yeah. The fact is, is living under apartheid wasn't quite, uh, like they picture, was it? Well, um, you'd have to ask a black South African or a brown South African that question because I can't really speak for them. I can tell you what I know. And I can also refer you to a Time magazine article from 1964, I think it was. It's a one that has old HF for South African Prime Minister on the cover, if you ever find that one. Uh, Time magazine gave him a good write-up and explained how everybody was going ahead and how black South Africans were going forward mm-hmm. at that stage. I don't think anybody can honestly look straight in a camera and say that things got worse and worse and worse for black people under sort of hard apartheid, which is, for me, the period until 1980, from, uh, say, 50 to 80. Mm-hmm. Uh, as best I've been able to tell, most people got ahead. What is true is that black people could not vote in the parliament where white folks voted, period. Mm-hmm. Okay? But 
they were slowly given homelands, which were massive territories. In the U.S., it would be the equivalent of giving Texas to another nation. Okay? It's not little smatterings of reserves. We're talking about sizable chunks of the country in the well irrigate, not irrigated, the well, uh, uh, well-watered part of the country, as in good rainfall. Mm-hmm. Nobody attempted to put people in countryside that's desert. There was no trail of tears. There was no moving of people to Oklahoma out of the forest at east. Okay? There was no 600 or 300 mile march of men, women, and children. There's none of that history that Americans associate with this kind of thing ever happened in South Africa. Yes, just like Americans have been bussing Mexicans and Hondurans and so forth back to the border, just so the South African government bussed people back to the homelands if they came into the country. Um, but if if folks want to get upset about the homeland thing, let me share a picture. Um, now, Harry, where is the share button now? I can't find the share button. Should Wait, be at what? the bottom. Uh, guys, I got a big picture of you, Dan, and then I have a the control panel, and nowhere is there a banner that tells me share. So I don't know what to do. It should be. Uh... Oh, hang on, hang on, hang on. Here you go. It's hidden behind my picture. That's why. Okay, share screen. Tell me when you see it. Yeah, that's it. We got it. You got it. Okay. You see that jagged blue line running through the picture? Mm-hmm. And you see Port Elizabeth. That's that's where I was born. It's a little bit further south than Cape Town actually is. Mm-hmm. Now, it's not the southernmost point of the country. This The city is just situated more southerly than Cape Town itself. Mm-hmm. That blue line is, in effect, the 300 to 350 millimeter rainfall line for the country. West of that, you got less rain. East of it, you got more. Since all those colored blocks are the homelands that were, uh, 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 I'm not going to say given to, they'd always lived there. They were, it were, the places were formally ceded to them. So my question is, how many homelands do you see left to the west of that line, Dan? None. Good. Remember that, because that's the dry part. Mm-hmm. That's where my father lived, on a farm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Do you notice that all of them are to the right, which means the wet part of the country? Mm-hmm. Okay. You see there at the top, it says Kosa 1 and Kosa 2. Yellow for Kosa 1, orange for Kosa 2. That's because they are two different nations with roughly the same culture and language, but they split up in the 1700s, the mid-1700s, and... uh, they were fighting about which is the paramount of the two. And so in the end, uh, they were given separate pieces of countryside. Mm -hmm. Okay. 
You see that little orange block that juts out westward from Lesotho, from the country Lesotho? Mm -hmm. That gray blotch in the middle of South Africa. You can thank Britain for that. They made it an independent country, completely surrounded by South Africa, very mountainous. The Sotho people live there. Today, the majority of Sotho people have moved into South Africa just like what will ultimately happen with Central America if you open your border completely. Right. Okay. So that today, that whole barren patch in the middle where it says Bloemfontein, that's now complete Sutu territory, completely dominated by them. Hmm. Nevertheless, that orange bit sticking out like that, that was semi-artificially given to the Koza people, because the ones living there are not real, proper, as the Brits would say, Paka Koza. They're actually people who were driven out of the far east around the Durban area. They were chased out of there by the famous Shaka Zulu. Okay. okay. They fled, and they settled in that area, and in the end, it was decided, let's just formalize that. And so now that's that's their area. Well, well, sorry, in the 1980s, that was their area. Um, you see the orange patch that's sort of in amongst the green yep. near Durban? Mm -hmm. That's another subgroup of Koza-speaking people. The language is called Isi Koza. And those people are largely the Pondo nation. And in 1986, while my mother lived in Durban, there was a war between the Pondo and the Zulu because the, every time the Zulu go and work for the year in the gold mines near Johannesburg. And so they contract workers, they go and work, and then around Christmas time, they come back home. The Pondus don't typically do that. So while the Zulus are away, the Pondus slowly, um, uh, you know, crawl into the Zulu territory. They take over things and so forth, and in mm -hmm. some cases take their wives and you name it. So the Zulu came back and they, uh, they said, uh-uh, this ain't going to stand. So... Uh, that's how one day one of the chief guys working with my mother, a man named John, we'll call him, John walks up to a very respectable guy always a student. He said to her, Mrs. Boyens, I have to go home. And my mother asked him, why, John, is something wrong? And he said, um, yes, madam, um, it is war, and I am an Induna. Induna is a captain. And the job of the Induna is to gather the men and get them ready for war. And she knew better than to interfere with any of that. And she told him, no, that's good, John. It, it, go. It's okay. We'll figure out what to do. So John went home. That afternoon, she got home and she started smelling something strange. She couldn't quite fathom what it was. And eventually she went to the window at the back of her uh, condo. 
Now, her condo was the last line of buildings before the boundary fence between white area near Durban and proper KwaZulu. KwaZulu means land of the Zulu. Mm -hmm. So there's a fence, the single blacktop road running between her building and the fence. Other side, the fence is KwaZulu. And she looked out the window, and that's when she noticed that there's smoke on the horizon to the north, and there's this peculiar smell, and she started realizing what it is because she noticed on the horizon, it's like the horizon was turning dark, was turning black-brown, like there's a line across the horizon. And after a while, the line resolved itself, and it was men running in her direction, parallel to the fence. The fence ran basically northeast, southwest. So they're running from the northeast to the southwest, trying to get away. And it's the Pondus in front running away from the Zulus, and it's the Zulus coming behind them with their traditional shields and spears. And what she's smelling is a mix of smoke and male perspiration. That's when she realized what she'd been smelling. Hmm. So hopefully that gives you some idea of the actual relationship between black nations in South Africa when you mm -hmm. strip off the veneer that the world tries to paint over it. Okay. Uh, the Pondu and the Zulu don't get along. Any of the Koza and the Zulu don't get along. They never have and they never will. But they are the two biggest groups in the country. So they were given distinctly separate homelands. And one of the big challenges around the, the Zulu territory was to how to consolidate it. And that nasty old government kept buying out so-called white land or farmers in order to consolidate that territory for the Zulu. An amazing amount of effort and money went into that for a bunch of people who supposedly hated black people. Mm -hmm. um, to the northeast, uh, sorry, northwest, you see that uh, purple kind of color. Mm -hmm. Those are the Tswana people. They're as different from these two coastal groups as what the Swedes are from the Italians. Okay. Mm -hmm. Um, if Italians are generally shorter guys with with dark hair, I know I'm generalizing, but that's the image, mm -hmm. then your your Tswana guy is the equivalent of the Viking, you know, a rather different kind of guy, different kind of culture, different behavior. Okay. He doesn't throw his arms in the air and go mamma mia, you know. <laughs> uh, yeah, I've seen that physically. Now, uh, they're the third biggest group. Very, very, very different from the two coastal lots. The coastal lots are very warlike. Okay. The Zulu are organized. Their nation is organized as an army. They can mobilize pretty much overnight. It's impressive. It's really impressive. I gave you the example of John, who's an Anduna, and had to go home to get the army together for, for the war, which happened the same day. <laughs> okay. 
the Swana are almost the exact opposite. They're really into trade. They just want to manage their cattle. Now, having mentioned the word cattle, the reason why that blue line is where it is is because of the rainfall. And you need that higher rainfall for grass because cattle needs long grass. You can keep sheep in the West because they can eat the short little shrubs and things and goats where it's even drier. But cows cannot survive on that stuff. Cattle cannot survive on that stuff. So for the cattle, you need the rainfall. And all of those black cultures in South Africa were originally dependent on cattle. That was their basic form of life. Without the cattle, they died, period. None of them were fundamentally agricultural people. They were all cattle herders. None of them could sustain themselves on agriculture. They never did. They still don't. Okay, so the 1980s. When I went back to South Africa in June 1980, um, is that right? Yes, June 1980. The... Uh, uh, I had I had lived through the disaster in the Iranian desert uh, under Carter and all that kind of stuff. Um, the U.S. had gone through its biggest dip uh, in that century so far, and uh, I, I can remember my my dearest friend George actually talking to me in IBM with tears rolling down his face. The man was crying about what happened in Iran. And his comment was, you know, the Israelis got it right. The Germans got it right in Mogadishu. You guys got it right in the Khmers. How the hell can we not get it right? Okay. He was profoundly upset. And uh, I mentioned that because I think that's to some degree where the U.S. is again or was under Obama. The, uh, the thing is, um, when, when I left the U.S. at that time, it was for two reasons. Yes, we were homesick. But also, a whole lot of changes were in the offing. It was quite clear that things were changing in South Africa. A new president had been put in position. His name was P.W. Buerta. He was a most unlikable chap. I don't know anyone who liked him. And uh, he used to wag his finger at everybody. But he got things done. And... Uh, He's the guy who then started removing the what was called the Immorality Act. I thought the act itself was immoral, but it was the one that forbade uh, uh, marriages between people of different race. Well, no, correction. You could get married, but if you did, you would be reclassified uh, by color. So uh, that didn't that 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 was a really awful piece of work. Um, but uh, he also implemented unions for black people so that they could negotiate for better wages, et cetera, et cetera. From where I sat, other than that he's an unlikable man, he didn't really do anything wrong. And things were looking up for most people. Now, that, that was a real threat to the ANC. 
which is the African National Congress, mm -hmm. the basically communist-based party of Mandela. Mandela was then in jail. He went to jail in 64. Um, at this point, they were looking at moving him into a grand house of his own with a white cook and a swimming pool. So when you saw all the pictures in uh, uh, 10 years later of how he uh, uh, walked free in the street, he didn't walk free from, you know, breaking up rocks with picks and things. He walked free from a jail where he had a house of his own with a swimming pool and a uh, white cook. Uh, but that, that's a little bit in the future from where I am. I'm talking early 80s at this point. Well, here, here he lets, uh, it's important for people to understand why he was in prison, why he was in jail. Well, the, the, the point is, let's, let's go back to when I was born. Some months before I was born, Mandela, then not yet the big chief of the ANC, Mandela got his one friend who was going to go to China uh, he got his friend to uh, uh, ask the Chinese for weapons. This is your angel of peace, mercy, and brotherly love that you celebrate in the United States. I know him as the terrorist Nelson Mandela because, you know, to me, it's it's very near and dear. They damn near killed my mother. Mm -hmm. Okay. So uh, someone in the U.S. just decided to, to do the opposite job on him from what they did on us. That's how your system works. And Americans don't. Guys, i, I got to tell you this. Just because you got more money per person in the world and more education than anyone else per square centimeter in the world doesn't mean you cannot be a klutz. Okay, I certainly agree with that. And the problem is that your media and your uh, uh, propaganda system is so effective and so clever that it simply runs away with your intelligentsia. Your intelligent people are being BSed and they actually can't smell it or see it. Mm -hmm. Okay. And this has been true for all of my life. Okay. Well, I, I could, refer to them, Harry, because I've got some in my own family, uh, refer to them as high IQ netwits. Yeah. And and I I have the simple philosophy, you know, you find me the nearest ordinary hard slogging farmer. I don't talk about these guys who sit at home and they keep a farm just for the show. Talk about real farmers, guys who have to go out and use a John Deere. Okay. You find me one of those guys. You will never be as them that way, the way that your top guys are being mentally messed up. Okay. The realistic feet on the ground farmer is a guy who can be trusted to keep his head straight. As an awful lot of them in a rural Midwest. <laughs> mm -hmm. Okay. And that is why the two coasts hate them and call them flyover country. Is because those folks as a group can see through all of this and they smell it. I'm telling you, they smell it. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, 
nevertheless, uh, over that period, P.W. Boerta did a whole bunch of things that I thought were pretty good. You know, he got rid of the nastiest of the laws. He made it possible for students of color, as you guys would say, uh, to go to some white universities at the time. He actually created universities uh, for black people where there had never been any, uh, or there had been only one, really, much earlier. So he created more like the uh, 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 University of West Cape for the uh, the so-called colored people of the Cape, or really the Khoisan people. Uh, there's many of those that I could list. Mm-hmm. So, uh, seems to me he did everything right, but that was a threat to the ANC, and that is when they got money out of the Russians or the USSR to start destabilizing the country. And that's how their bombing campaigns started. And uh, now you want to know about Mandela. Sorry, I I diverged myself there. Mandela had sent his guy in, in 1952 already off to China to get weapons. Um, by the early 60s, he was into bomb making. He had been to a, a sort of a Al-Qaeda-like camp system in Ethiopia, where he was trained in basic military stuff and how to handle explosives and make uh, uh, IEDs and things like that. And so he came home and they started a bombing campaign. And, and they bombed various bits of infrastructure. Now, it's important to mention that they didn't try to directly kill any people. I will give them that credit that they blew up infrastructural things like power stations, uh, transformers, post offices, things like that, and they try to avoid killing people. Good for them. Not on the bombing, but on not targeting humans. Um, by nine, uh, So what happened is... Uh, he got caught. It is often said that the CIA tipped off the South Africans because South Africa worked fairly closely with the CIA. And uh, oddly, something happened on my recent Mediterranean cruise that confirmed that. I met one American gentleman who just in a queue and we... It was just it, it it was a meeting in space and time that happened for five minutes and then disappeared. And he just said to me, um, Harry, the South Africans I had to deal with were really impressive people, particularly technologically. But we're not gonna talk about that, are we? <laughs> okay. Mm-hmm. And he explained to me where he had lived, and there's only one employer in the United States who sends his people or its people to so many out-of-the-way spots, okay? And uh, That's a don't, look, don't look over your shoulder if you're going past Langley. <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay, so uh, we talked for five minutes about that. That was a Okay. And his description was early 80s. 
and I have my own notes on that era and things that happen, and it checks exactly with what he said. Okay. So, yeah, the people who say it's a conspiracy or whatever, I don't care. The CIA and the South African uh, uh, security systems, they, they at least exchanged notes. Now, it is said that they tipped off in 1964 already the South African security police as to where Mandela was. He was then arrested. There was a trial and uh, I need to explain this because people make a huge, big, massive deal about Mandela's speech before he was sentenced. Um, what was said in that speech could not be used to prosecute him, and he knew that. So it's a little quirky, interesting thing about Roman Dutch law just for the record, we got Roman Dutch law from the Dutch. But when Napoleon took over the Netherlands, he gave them the Napoleonic Code, and I don't even know what they have now, but they sure as hell don't have Roman Dutch law. There's only two places on earth that have Roman Dutch law. That's South Africa and Indonesia, the two colonies, two main colonies of, of the Dutch. Uh, they kept it. The Brits invaded us twice took it over and then ran us for 150 years, and they still never thought of changing that. They still thought it was perfectly fine. This is a great system, let them keep it, mm -hmm. okay? That is the system that Nelson Mandela was prosecuted in, and at the end, before sentencing, he could make a speech. He knew there was no hope in hell that he would go free. He knew there was no hope in hell he would be exonerated. He was guilty of sin. So were the others. Okay. And he was sentenced to life in prison for the bombing campaign and a plan to actually uh, uh, overthrow the government. And that plan would involve landing some armed men at my own hometown of Port Elizabeth to start attacking, okay? I leave you to ponder what it is that they would be landed from. How on earth would you secretly place invading dinghies of men on the sea at a coast? The ANC didn't have U-boats, mm -hmm. right? So who would have supplied that, do you think? Okay. Right. So that was the background with uh, what sounded like uh, Soviet marine support, marine as in sea support, not marines. Mm -hmm. Okay. The Russians would never get their own hands in the pie like that. So uh, with that kind of support and that kind of training and realizing that a lot of these guys had gone to Russia to train, actually to the Ukraine in some cases, some of them were trained at Odessa. Hmm. One of them was, was trained to the level of brigadier in the Soviet army in actually Odessa, <laughs> okay, which was then part of the Soviet Union. Mm -hmm. So these, this is the collection of folks that then, uh, uh, well, correction. It's not the inv potential invasion force that, that, that got prosecuted. 
it was the guys who planned this. So Mandela and a bunch of other guys, uh, a, a number of them in the newspaper business. What else is new? Yeah. Always remember, Lenin was a newspaper man, right? Mm -hmm. So you, you need to start wondering why it is like that. And maybe it's it's time for another McCarthy to be born and to start by checking out your newspaper system. Mm -hmm. Now, um, he was sentenced to life in prison. And in the event, he served 26 years before he was freed um, by F.W. de Klerk, who took over from P.W. Berta. But the actual groundwork for all of that was done by P.W. Berta. It's P.W. Berta who started talking to Mandela. And the first time he spoke to Mandela, well, not, he didn't speak to him. He made him an offer. He said, swear of violence and we'll figure out something for you. And he refused. Mandela refused. He immediately turned the focus of his army into attacking ordinary civilians. And it's in that process that they bombed my mother's, uh, uh, the, the whole complex. It was like a, a mall with a apartment building on top. They bombed that. Um, she wasn't there at the time, but the second time they tried, the uh, limpet mine was was in the trash can right next to where she was standing. The police rushed in, grabbed her, and ran out of the building with her. Okay. So this stuff is real to me. It's theory to most Americans. Okay. Not some in Boston. Not some of the New York, the, the, trade, the, 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 the World Trade Center. But to the majority of the 330 million Americans, this is theoretical. This is not theoretical to me. Okay. It's sometime over that period that I took my family to the far north of that map that you see, and I'll remove it now, to the far north of that map. And what happened? Okay, right. Are we back to normal now? Yeah, we're back to normal. Now, uh, Harry, before you get too far, yeah. Talk about uh, Mandela's speech when he knew that there was uh, no way that it could be used to against him in in the court system. Exactly, uh, you know what what was said. Oh, look! It's a, it's a great speech, and he, and he said that yeah, essentially. Uh, if this takes my life, then blah, 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 blah. And it's a very stirring speech of a man who says, I'm going this direction, even if you kill me. Okay. Um, in the event, there was no death sentence involved, and the nasty old white people decided to spare the life of the man who wanted to overthrow the government and who had bombed several places and whose men would later attempt to murder my mother. Um, so, you know, uh, I can't remember any of the exact words for you, but having read it, I mm -hmm. uh, I can tell you, yeah, it's a, it's a it's a stirring speech. I can see how people on the left of the spectrum would sort of engrave this thing in wood and hang it on their front porch. Um, but 
people forget the context uh, in which it was delivered. This this is not this is not a speech in testimony. It is not a speech in testimony. That's the important point. He wasn't he wasn't yeah. testifying. Okay. Um, right. But to give you a feel for growing up at that time. I'd come back from the United States. So now we're in the, in the in the early 80s. I get back to South Africa. I'm working with a number of black PhDs, one from Wits University, one from University of the Western Cape, for example, perfectly competent men. Um, but just prior to that, I had spent a year at IBM, mm -hmm. which is bristling with PhDs. There wasn't a single black one that I ever met. The only black people I met in IBM was the uh, one of the senior guys in the estates area who had to assign offices to people, and then the secretary of my boss, who was a very lovely black lady. Okay, that was my first exposure to black people in America, and I thought they great. I really loved them. I. I mm -hmm. I felt I could speak to them way more freely and openly and easily than the the white New Yorkers, for example. Well, or the uh, white PhD uh, Danish gentleman that you'll bring up. Yeah, that's that's another <laughs> old story. Don't get me started on that guy. <laughs> well, <laughs> you you know you know about it only too well, and I. Mm -hmm. I don't know what to say, but he certainly calibrated me as to the what it is that the uh, what do you call them the social democrat kind of liberal white wants for me. Okay, my great sin was to have been born in South Africa and to see a white face if I look in the mirror. No matter how I get on with black people or anything like that. Um, I was going to mention and uh, again. In that period, 1985 until 1988, roughly that period, uh, was the worst in South Africa because the ANC had gone to war inside the country. Things had become too good for black people. Therefore, they had to do something. That's my picture. Okay. I mean, after all, black people now had unions. They're going up in the world. They're riding around in Mercedeses, you know. Mm -hmm. I'm talking to them in the furniture store because, like me, they're coming to buy stuff. Okay, this isn't good for a revolutionary organization. You need to be bitter and unemployed and all of these things. Otherwise, there's no revolution and they have no cause and they got no leg to stand on. So they got a cause a ruckus. Damn it, you guys need to start understanding this stuff. Go, go meet a friend in the CIA. Let them explain it to you. Okay, if you don't get it, my dear PhD friend that I'm staring at somewhere now in the United States, if you don't get this, get a friend in the CIA. Okay, um, that's nearly impossible. <laughs> yeah, <clears throat> anyway, <laughs> US pulls this stunt in many other places now, suddenly they don't know. Okay, uh, so. 
the, the place is in turmoil. A uh, state of emergency is declared. Okay, and you see these strange vehicles riding around. They bolt high on their wheels. They got V-shaped hulls, and South African troops are in them, and they try and. Uh, you know, now and then they're shooting at people, now and then they're hurting them, whatever, but they're trying to quell this thing. Of course, for that, we get attacked even further at the United Nations, because that body is apparently, its raison d'etre was to destroy South Africa, I think. No, it's so, a communist organization. So, uh, yeah, mm -hmm. I, I mean, we uh, if, if ever anybody said UN to me, I just said, oh, go to hell, you know, it's just... Pointless talking about it. Bunch of damn communists. And uh, so in the middle of all of this is where that war happened between the Zulu and the Koza, sorry, the Zulu and the Pondu that I mentioned earlier. Okay. My mother had just gone through the process of realizing she'd always been killed. Now the Zulu and the Pondu are fighting one another past the, her, her front door. Okay. And, and just a little, maybe a uniquely little South African sketch in the middle of all of this. I'll give you two little sketches about living there at the time. Three. Uh, first, bombs. My mother's building was bombed a first time. Then it was bombed a second time. She would sit at work and hear the bombs go off. And that night she'd read who was killed. Okay. My post office was a bomb was placed in the mailbox outside the post office and it went off. The bank down the road from us was bombed. Okay. So it's just bombs everywhere. In my book, I have a map of where all the bombs went off in South Africa. So people can take a look at it. This is real stuff. Okay. Now the two little snippets in the middle of that war between the Zulu and the Pondu, um, a Pondu guy comes running along, jumps across the border fence, runs across the road and into the property of the condo where my mother lives. There's a bunch of white guys outside. One of them has a revolver <laughs> against thousands of Zulus, right? One has a revolver. There's a little police car. I don't know if you know what an Anglia looks like, an Anglia van. It's a little four-cylinder van. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know. Okay. And uh, there's a machine gun in the back, like a heavy machine gun in the back, with a police guy sitting behind the machine gun. And the, the back door is thrown open and uh, locked open. That's the defense for that whole area. Okay, so one, one policeman with a mounted machine gun. Okay, so this Pondu runs into the place and a Zulu uh, chief guy, I don't, know, I don't know what rank he would be in their system, comes to the fence. He's careful, he stays on the other side of the fence and he says to the white guys, uh, sorry, I, I made it sound like that little Anglia van is mixed in with these few white guys. No, it's not. It's just, it just kind of drove past. Okay. So now you've got this collection of white guys standing there. You've got this Zulu on the other side of the fence, dressed up in his regalia with his spear and his shield. You got Pondus running everywhere, but one has jumped the fence and has come into the condo and he's scared for his life. So he says, uh, 
you must give us that man. And the white guy say, no, what are you going to do if we give him to you? This is, we're going to kill him. So no, they were not giving him to you. So the Zulu stood there. He sort of looked at them, summing them up. And then he says, it is okay, white man. Today our war is not with you. It is okay, white man. Today our war is not with you. <laughs> that tells you something right there. First of all, it tells you the discipline of the Zulu. It tells you the discipline of the Zulu. Secondly, it tells you their view on the world. <laughs> There's going to be a war another day. <laughs> this day, our war is not with you. Okay? They're a fascinating nation. Okay, They're absolutely fascinating. Um, I have a lot of respect for them, and I have a lot of fear for, of them, uh, with very good reason. Mm-hmm. Next little scene is about 1989. Me, I have my family uh, in the car with me. It's my mother, my wife, and my son. Son is about four years old at that stage. I want to take them to a famous hill in far northern South Africa, near the Limpopo River, which is the border. The hill is called Mapungubwe, and back in history, they found gold-clad clay rhinos on mm. this hill. Somebody had worked these things, mm-hmm. covered in gold foil, and it's from like hundreds of years ago. Okay. So uh, it's known as Mapungubwe. Harry wants to take the family to Mapungubwe. So I'm riding along this gravel road. And the next moment, from behind a thorn bush, what is this? What is the, what is the wood that uh, you folks like to uh, barbecue your meat mesquite. on? Mesquite. Mesquite. It looks like a mesquite bush, okay? There's a lot of mesquite in South Africa, but only in the West. It invaded from Namibia. But the indigenous South African equivalent of mesquite, and it's as universally present, as ubiquitous as mesquite, is the sweet thorn in South Africa. And it's used in exactly the same way. It is the favorite flavored uh, barbecue uh, uh, wood. Mm-hmm. So from behind a mesquite bush walks a soldier, white chip, white kid. Obviously, he's got a he's got a machine gun slung over his shoulder. Stops me, walks over to the window. I wind the window down, and he says to me in the classic Afrikaans fashion. I'll translate into English. Good morning, uncle. Okay, because the term mm-hmm. is uncle. It's a fam- mm-hmm. it's a familial kind of familiar, familial kind of expression in Afrikaans. If it's a it's kind of like the kind of like the Marines right now. Everybody they refer to you as brother. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, except this, this is a term of respect for mm-hmm. an older a term of respect for an older person you don't know, but he has to be significantly older than you. That was the first time in my life that a fully grown white male ever called me uncle, okay? But he did. He said, good morning, uncle. Um, I think it really would be better if you did not use this road. 
there's been mining on this road, and I think really you should turn around because I think you may be endangering yourself and your family if you continue. So I said, okay. And as I started the car to turn, I looked into the mesquite bush and I realized I'm looking at a machine gun emplacement hidden inside, mm. inside the bush pointed at my car. Okay. So that's when I realized, oh, Lord, I'm on that road. And when I'm, what I mean by that road is it's a farm road on which a farmer's Mercedes had set off an anti-tank landmine and it had killed his family. Mm -hmm. Okay? Yeah, maybe better that I get out of here. Not a smart move to go to Mapungubwe on this road. Mm -hmm. You wanted to know what it was like living in South Africa in the 1980s? We had that. But in normal, ordinary life, everybody was getting ahead. Um, there's, one, there's one chap who wrote an article about visiting in America, visiting South Africa in that period, and he had a sort of a odd comment, a little offbeat comment, is, is something along the lines of uh, um, if all the black folks driving Mercedeses are chauffeurs for other people, then I need to meet these other people. And that was his way of, of saying there's an awful lot of black people with Mercedeses around now. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure one has to say much more than that to describe the country in the 1980s. It's been completely disrupted by the ANC with Russian help mm -hmm. and American political and moral support, which I can go into if you want me to. And on the other hand, you have this bustling economy uh, with everybody getting ahead. Uh, Harry, the reason that I, I want to have that discussion, and I do want to hear the U.S. involvement in South Africa, but that uh, perfectly paints the picture right now of what's happening in the United States with Antifa and BLM and all these different attempts to slice and dice our society and to make everybody into enemies so that they can get their one world uh, international Marxist system. Okay, and, so you go ahead and describe uh, America's participation in bringing down South Africa. Just as a little aside, would you like to have a picture of our global warming heroine, uh, Greta Thunberg, wearing an Antifa T-shirt? No, I, I, I would love that. Do you have it? It just shows you know, you know mm -hmm. how, how the little toe is connected to the knee bone, or the toe bone is connected to the knee bone, connected to the head bone. Mm -hmm. Okay, right. Mm -hmm. um, the wish bone. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I just, I, I, I just marvel at the way that people can't connect this. Um, okay, uh, American involvement in South Africa at that time. In the early 1980s, uh, with Reagan in charge, 
uh, there was a degree of cooperation uh, on the international front. Basically, we made sure that we destabilized the Russians as much as we could in Angola. We kept them on their toes. Uh, no intention of invasions. There's nothing in Angola that we wanted. Uh, but Savimbi was there in the southeast corner with his UNITA group, and he wanted nothing to do with the guys running the country under the auspices of the Russians. So he got help from the CIA, and he got help from us. Um, that led to uh, something that really turned into a conventional war in southeastern Angola, and uh at the end of that, the Russians packed up and the Cubans packed up. Mm -hmm. um, that's also roughly the period over which that gentleman that I met over my recent holiday would have been involved with South Africans. His, his one comment to me was, is it was absolutely re remarkable. We'd show them something and then just some months later, they, they'll have made an example of their own and it would work great. <laughs> okay. So uh, anyway. Where to take it from here? The, um, well, let, let's, uh, let's, uh, you were talking about how the Americans. Yeah, right. Okay. Inside South Africa. Mm -hmm. Well, um, Starting with the so-called Soweto riots, which I think were justified to some degree because the government had come up with a stupid rule telling them they got to do various subjects in Afrikaans, not in English. Why anybody would poke the bear like that, I don't know, but the stupid government did that stupid thing. Immediately after that was the rise of a guy um, called Desmond Tutu. Mm-hmm. I'll never forget when I got here to Canada, people were telling me, ooh, Desmond Tutu, ooh, Desmond Tutu, you know. <laughs> God, unbelievable. Well, supposedly a man of the claw. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yes. You mean the one who said that uh, the black women in the households could have could have poisoned the white children? That one? That Tutu? Yeah, well. You want to see I, that black on white? I, it's I, Dutch I, because it's in a Dutch newspaper, so Americans don't see it. Mm -hmm. That is there for the Dutch to see. They know it. Sure, sure. Okay. Um, he got together with a guy named Randall Robinson. Randall Robinson is an American black chap who hated the United States and eventually emigrated to Haiti, I think. Mm. I think it was Haiti. I'm not sure. But uh, he thought the U.S. was an evil place, you know, run by horrid white guys who wanted just bad stuff for black people, blah, 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 blah. A, a true Africanist in an American skin. Okay. Uh, so we went to the African heaven called Haiti The uh, eventually. But before he did that, he started the process of murdering South Africa's image in the U.S. media. And he would 
instigate protests in the U.S. and the whole placard thing. And suddenly America, who had never paid much attention to South Africa, thought that it was the number one item on the news. Mm -hmm. Okay. And the way I experienced it was like, In 1980, I left IBM. When I was back at IBM in 1984, I was essentially persona non grata. That was Robinson who did that. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, It got so bad that when I got to the one company on the West Coast, um, Rockwell, let me name them. When I got to Rockwell in 1986, they wouldn't let me further than the entrance hall uh, after having arranged a visit with them. So they stopped me. And their vice president was so mad at that, that he invited me over to his own place for the weekend and took me around and did his best to be a decent host. Okay. So I know firsthand, personally, to my face, just how it changed because of that piece of work called Randall Robinson. And as I said, he is so true to America that he eventually fled the country and settled himself in Haiti until he discovered what it means being in an African heaven. And then he put his tail between his legs and eventually slunk back to the United States. Hmm. Okay? Where this miserable piece of human whatever now resides. So that man, with the able assistance of Tutu, is what did it. Uh, That's what trashed South Africa's future during the Mm mid-1980s. The combination of Tutu, a man of the cloth ostensibly, uh, together with an American activist. Okay. Then around came the 1990s thing. So between 85 and 90, the government was talking to to Mandela. And we kind of knew that because uh, uh, De Beers got involved, the company De Beers. Here we go again. I am not going to talk about roads today, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. But the company De Beers got involved. And... Some people might know that De Beers is not allowed to operate in the United States because it's deemed a cartel. Mm-hmm. And uh, so you won't find De Beers in the U.S. At least maybe something's changed, but uh, all of my regular original life before uh, my Canadian life, I uh, the calibration was that De Beers is not allowed to function in the U.S., but they certainly ran a cartel with the Russians. Mm-hmm. So they did the selling of the Russian diamonds, which gave them an insight into Russia that no one else had. Amazingly, in 1985, I sat in a presentation by a senior guy from the Beers explaining to us, the Soviet Union is about to collapse When it collapses, the following is going to happen. This is what we're going to plan for. You've got to decide what you're going to plan for. Okay? Yet, somehow, 
the Soviet collapse caught the CIA by surprise. Oh, yeah, I know. This, that should tell you something, right? Yeah, well, exactly. No, I believe me, there's no such thing as uh, innocence in any of this crap. So, uh, 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 interestingly, we saw that coming, and our government at the time, as supposedly evil as they was, as supposedly corrupt, which they never were, they were too stupid to be corrupt, um, as far as I'm concerned. Gullible. Whatever it is. But they were too honorable in their regular conduct, despite any racism they might have. They were too honorable in their conduct to be corrupt. Okay, nobody ever complained about corruption in the old South Africa. The word didn't even have place for use in a sentence. Okay, um, so things used to run properly, and 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 they got wind of this because I know that before we were spoken to by De Beers, they did a special presentation to P.W. Buerta and to Mandela. Hmm. They got permission to go and give this briefing to Mandela that Russia, that the Soviet Union is going to collapse. And they did the same briefing to P.W. Berta and his government. And they did the same briefing to us. And I know what they said because I was there. Mm -hmm. Okay. And the guy who did it is a man named Clem Sunter. And you can look him up. S-U-N-T-E-R, Clem Sunter. Uh, and I communicated with him a little bit when I wrote Amabulu. Now, uh, with that background, all we felt we had to do was hold, hold the fort in southern Angola, keep bloodying the Russians there, and just make them burn their capital over there because they were shipping in billions of dollars of stuff. And uh, <laughs> as, as, the, as the United States... Uh, under Secretary of State for Africa said at the time, in a splendid, uh, what do you call it, splendid paradox or something, um, Russia became the main supplier of weapons to South Africa. We were taking stuff off the Russian surrogates so to such a degree and so fast that the Soviet Union became South Africa's biggest weapons supplier. Hmm according to the State Department. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. So all we had to do is just keep nailing them over there. And that we did very well. So well that, uh, you know, in, in I think it's the Marine School or whatever, there's at least one dissertation focused just on how the hell is South Africa handling that? Mm -hmm. Okay. I, I still have that title here somewhere. I looked at it. Guy was most complimentary. He referred to like Rommel and so forth in comparisons. Now, that seemed like a pretty good position to be in. You know that your main enemy is going to collapse. Uh, you know it from reliable authority. You are managing to make him bleed like crazy. All you got to do is hold out and then all is going to be okay. You have Reagan in position. You have George Sr. taking over from him. And George Sr. is the man who put the ANC correctly on the terrorist list of the United States. He put them there. Mm -hmm. 
Okay, and I think it was uh, in his stint as vice president that he did it, because it would have been around eighty-five, six or so, right? So that that I, I can never quite remember when he was the CIA chief and when he was vice president. It was obviously under Reagan. Mm-hmm. Um, but eighty, to, basically eighty. Uh, well, eighty-one to uh, eighty-nine, basically. Was he for the whole? He was there for the duration. He was, uh, of the, okay. yeah, I, I, I uh, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Okay. Now, what I can tell you, and I think I'll be forgiven legally and otherwise for the statement: a senior South African military guy told me, as long as George Bush is there, we're okay. Make of that what you please, whether it's as vice president or as CIA chief, as long as George Bush is there, we're okay. Right. Um, Well, I think my country was killed by three words in a row. Read my lips. Mm -hmm. Literally, read my lips. Mm Because that's what George Bush said, and it basically cost him his re-election, right? Yeah, that's among how- other things. Other than the fact that he also said, uh, we're moving into a new world order, and we're going to be wonderful uh, under a new yeah. world order. I, yeah. I, 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 know, I know he's seen as the uh, American thought leader on new world order, but I've also made a point of going and reading his exact speech. Mm-hmm. And I have too. to 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 be honest, I might have made that speech too. If you're at the end of the Cold War, you kind of think there has to be a new world order of some sorts, like mm. like Bretton Woods was a new world order. So it's probably gonna have to be a new world order. So I'm I'm of the school that tends to Forgive George Sr. because he did a whole lot of good where I was. Um, but that's it. Yeah, we, mm-hmm. we, we can politely agree to differ there. Right. I might well be wrong that I'm reading the man wrong. But th- right. that's, Well, that's but you, you saw it from your perspective. You saw yeah. him as yeah. being uh, a supporter of South Africa. And for that very reason, mm-hmm. I, I would certainly agree with your uh, with your particular perspective. And, and I mean, it, it, like Ronald Reagan made a fantastic plea to Congress saying, mm-hmm. guys, what are you doing? You know, just take a look at Russia and then take a look at South Africa. You know, look what the Russians do. And, mm-hmm. and, and, and you know, but nothing was going to stop your Congress and they, they overrode Reagan's veto against all the sanctions against South Africa. And so we got these absolutely mind-obliterating sanctions that your Congress slapped on us. Uh, there, were, there were two actions by your Congress and then George's unfortunate read my lips thing. Um, the first one was in 1975 when your Congress, while... USCIA troops and South African troops are facing the enemy in the middle of it. They say, come home. So we were deserted in the face of the enemy. Hmm. 
by an act of the United States Congress. I take serious exception to that, and I think those are not men. Those are something else. And secondly, it happened in uh, about, what is it, 1986, when the comprehensive sanctions were placed on South Africa. Uh, that destroyed the economy. Because imagine, uh, Dan, it, 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 imagine the bank calls up your mortgage and stops all your credit cards right, and right. says that the loans you have, you have to pay back uh, next year. They're not going to roll it over. Right, right. Okay. You know what happens to a regular, ordinary, working stiff American when that gets done to him? Well, sure. that's what was done to us as a country by the U.S. Congress. And it is a Republican who led the charge. So I have equal measures of resentment towards smart as Republicans and smart as Democrats. I, I do too, Harry. I completely agree. And I actually have a I have an apology on record from an American chap who said, My God, Harry, I never knew and I voted for him. <laughs> and I forget now for a moment who the who the Republican senator was who, who led that whole effort. But it was a desperate attempt by Republicans to show the American public that they can kick South Africa harder than what the Democrats can. Mm -hmm. It became a sport to kick us when we're down. Okay? It's a little hard to make peace with all of that, especially if your country has died, which it has. My country, as I understood it, uh, with its people, white and black and brown and Indian, is frankly dead. It's dead man walking. Mm -hmm. And the folks I still have there are basically waiting to die. They can't get out of there. They don't have enough money to leave there. So they they just want to be not murdered before they die. That That's that's their future. Their, their whole scope of the future is, I pray, O oh Lord, that I will not be murdered before I die. Mm -hmm. That's what life now looks like. Well, and Harry, you said, what, six, seven, eight years ago, when we first started talking about this, you said, you wait this is what you have in front of you yes. because you're allowing the same crazy progressive liberals to control your country that took over ours. Yeah. And not, you're right. I mean, you take a look at uh, it's, it's like you talking about Greta Thunberg and wearing an Antifa shirt. Absolutely. It's the same lunatics only they aren't happy. See, here's the thing. The United States was successful under Trump. We yes. were coming back. Yes. We were we were strengthening our economy instead of destroying it. Yes. We were getting rid of a lot of the problems. Uh, Trump, uh, in spite of the fact that he was uh, labeled as a racist and everything else, had done more for the black community uh, as a president than Oda Obama ever thought of doing. Obama created nothing but strife and hatred and uh, 
uh, friction between all the races. Trump actually worked harder to create jobs and opportunities and do things for various uh, minority races than any president in uh, a very, very long time, maybe in history. Look, I don't care how much Trump burnished his own image. I don't care how much he blew his own trumpet. I don't care how arrogant he was. I'm a scientist engineering kind of guy. I put a black box around things like that. And I simply ask myself, what is coming out of the box and what is going into the box? And I can tell you this, I have confronted lots of people with my black box way of looking at it. And my comment to them is, yeah, he's an aggravating SOB. Okay, right. I got it. You don't like him. I got that. Okay. Lots of presidents that you had that I don't like either. Okay. Including Kennedy. <laughs> now, now put a black box around your favorite or, 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 or most hated person and ask yourself, what was consumed by that box and what came out of the box. First of all, let me ask you, which new money-dribbling war did Trump start? Name right. it. Right. Name he it did me. Name it. Mm -hmm. Okay? And they can't. And then they start, and, and uh, he caused strife and dissent. No one caused as much strife and dissent as Obama. Mm -hmm. I spent two weeks on a... Except O'Biden. Except O'Biden. Maybe. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think... Well, I mean, Biden, he's the Biden third term. Biden indulges it. I think Obama started it. Well, I think that uh, O'Biden is actually just a surrogate for Trump's, uh, for uh, Obama's Obama. third term. Well, he hasn't really done anything drastically different. But uh, mm -hmm. then you, you you put the same black box around Obama and ask, where did he get you into? He got you into Libya. He got you into Syria. You know, what the hell? Mm -hmm. You know, what's wrong with people? Can't they see straight? You know, what did he do to the economy? Oh, no. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it, 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 I, I feel some days that I am surrounded by absolutely bloody minded, blind stupidity. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the, the join, best, join the crowd, Harry. We all feel that way. The, the the best comment to me was one that I think I may have mentioned that the gentleman uh, that 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 spoke to me at that conference at your one conference in uh, oh for heaven's sake, Western uh, Washington State, big town. Oh, oh, you're talking the red pill, yeah, Spokane. Yeah. Spokane, 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 Spokane. I always swap a Canadian town in Spokane. Kamloops mm -hmm. in Canada, Spokane in in in, in Washington. Mm -hmm. And his comment to me was, Harry, we've never had a president who's ever even really tried to do what he said he was gonna do. Mm -hmm. This guy visit visibly is trying to do what he said he was going to do, okay? We've never had that. Mm -hmm. We don't know what that is, okay? And secondly, we didn't vote for a Sunday school teacher in chief. We voted for a commander in chief. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, that's a neat summary from a gentleman who could have been my dad, okay? 
Mm-hmm. And a superb gentleman to 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 speak to, and uh, I don't know how I ended up at the table sitting next to him, but he was a fantastic man. And uh, but that summarized it for me. You mm-hmm. know, you've never had a president who tried to do what he said he was going to do. Okay, and uh, we didn't vote for a Sunday school teacher in G. <laughs> I, you know, that might have been my good friend Ted Williams uh, that you were talking to. Yeah, he. Uh, I'll, I'll. I'll. I'll never forget. Uh, he's. He asked me about South Africa and what to do and so forth. And mm-hmm. eventually, I, I. He made a. You know. Uh, I my uh, un. Uh, uh, improperly thought through comment to him was, I don't know how to get God to do stuff. Mm -hmm. You know, Mm -hmm. and there was great silence next to me. And when I turned to him, he was crying. Mm -hmm. He just put his arm around my shoulder and he said, God is working through you, Harry. Wow. That does sound like dad. (laughs) <laughs> anyway, that so, does sound uh, like Ted. Well, uh, Harry, let's let's talk about what is going on now. I think you see the big picture. You and I've been talking for a long time. I've told you that you may disagree with some of my opinions, but I've tried to show you a much broader uh, sense of the world than maybe uh, y- you had seen before, I don't know, but um, I do know this. We are seeing right now the the culmination of an entire worldwide uh, attack on free market capitalism and a worldwide uh, move by international banksters, by uh, by communist countries, by Marxism, by uh, fascism. We see a lot of things kicking off right now, but they're all designed to take down free market economies and individual rights and replace them with a, uh, for lack of a better term, I would call it a Soviet system that's all top-down control. Uh can I can I can I give you my picture on sure, on this? sure. I, I see the stuff happening, but um, I'm going to fetch this in a very funny place. Um, this morning I switched on YouTube, and what it played to me was the story about Paul McCartney supposedly dying in 1967, and they explain that and then they went through all the bits of evidence that people put together to say see 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 mm-hmm. they did all of that um and of course mccartney just shrugs this off etc so it, it it and in the end they said it that that that, that mi6 told the beatles management uh, just put somebody else in there and give him facial surgery to 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 look like paul mccartney and then train his voices it, it's it's nonsense okay so i look at that and i ask myself 
which parts of this are part of a plan, which parts of this are just people cashing in on what they see as a plan, and, and which parts of this are just opposition who are making hay while the sun shines, etc. So mm. when I look at it like that, my comment to you would be, you have what I would call natural God-given enemies. <laughs> Mm-hmm. No matter how much the Democratic Party has crawled up uh, Red China, Red China is a God-given enemy. Mm-hmm. You can turn that whichever way you want. Okay? Mm-hmm. That's true. I don't think the Russians are God-given enemies at all. Mm-hmm. I think I they've, I think they've lived under a system that's addled their brains, but Okay. I think they're salvageable. There's nothing salvageable about China. It's culturally too different. It's never going to work. Now, I see Russia, particularly Putin, as cashing in on Knox that his temporary enemy, the U.S., is taking. He's going to try and win off that what he can win off it. I see China, your God-given enemy, as making chess moves that could hurt you, yes, but they play on a very big chess board, and they're not given to flights of fancy like Greta Thunberg. Right, right. I think there are hundreds of other countries who really are not players in this great game, like, I really don't think Burkina Faso has anything to say to the U.S. I don't think Chile has necessarily anything to say, or Paraguay, or Thailand, or Western Samoa, or, or anything like that. So I can rule out heaps and heaps and heaps of countries. And in the end, I bring it down to one thing. The West in capital letters. Yes, there's Turkey who would like to create a whole new Turkic national phenomenon all across Asia. And uh, Erdogan will do whatever he can to advance the concept of Turkic nations. There's Iran, who have delusions of past grandeur and they think they can pull it off again. Okay? And but I, I honestly don't think the ordinary in the Iranian in the street has a bloodlust to murder Americans. Absolutely not. I really don't believe that. No, okay. no. Let, let it, all, it all boils down, Harry. It all boils down to governments yeah. and ideologies. But I, I don't think anybody who, who, who makes clever schemes like global warming, uh, I don't think the Ayatollah could understand that conversation, and I think he has no interest in it. He just wants to bomb you. Okay. So there are guys like the Ayatollah and guys like uh, 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 Kim Jong-un, you know, Mm -hmm. who who, who sees himself as the embodiment of his own nation, blah, 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 blah. You have creatures like that. Mm -hmm. Uh, then then you have uh, guys who have their own kind of delusions like 
Putin who wants to have the old czarist Russia back under his control. Uh, I see that kind of thing. But that's not where this threat is coming from. Right. This threat is coming from the West. And it's coming from that part of the West that killed my country. Mm-hmm. It's not the Russians who killed I my agree. country. I agree. Let it be known. Let it be known that while we were fighting the Russians in Angola, they had a delegation in Pretoria to talk to the South African government, and they invited F.W. de Klerk to St. Petersburg, which was the first place he visited. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, Harry, Harry can, can I say the, something? The problem I, is the West. It is the West. We have a cancer in our system. It's called progressive socialism. It's called high IQ netwits who abound by the by the billions. Uh, well, certainly not billions, but let's say they abound by the millions. Uh, we have a sickness in our culture that comes from the old communist Marxist socialist ideology that uh, people have to be controlled and they have to be guided for their own good. Now, you've been there before. Um, and, And Dan, you uniquely, you as a person, uniquely have insight into this. And you need to make that uniqueness clear to people. You have told me that your two parents were card-carrying communists. My mother wasn't. My dad was. Your dad was. Okay. Your dad was a card-carrying communist. Okay. Sorry, with apologies to your mother. Mm -hmm. My, My point is this. I bet you that he was a card-carrying communist because of the original culture of the 1930s when communism was also cool in the West. No question. No question. We've been here before. We know where it goes. Mm -hmm. We know where it goes. That's right. We've already learned this lesson. Okay? We've already learned the lesson. Well, Harry, that's why I started my newsletter with a quote by uh, George Santana. Those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. That's why I started my newsletter with that, because we keep reliving the same stupid programs that have already proven themselves to be stupid. And uh, when are we going to learn? When are we going to understand? If, if, if you were to go back to my, my book, which causes me no end of trauma in my life, but if you were to go back to my book, you'll find this like chapter 21 or something is about communism. Mm-hmm. Okay. And it quotes extensively 
from a book that went and dug through the paperwork of the Comintern, the, the, the Communist International, right? And they showed the links to South Africa, what happened in South Africa. Remember the South African Communist Party is one of the oldest on earth. Mm-hmm. It's created in like 1919 or 1920. Okay. And uh, people get very upset with me when I mention this, but it was indeed created out of uh, some very strong Jewish organizations, mm-hmm. okay, and some other uh, uh, socialist organizations. Um, and that's all there to see. And the interesting thing is it also explains what certain American communists were doing with respect to South Africa, mm-hmm. okay? These guys have been around before. They had other names. They were in other bodies, if I can put it like that. But we should be able to smell them out by now. We should. We've been around the block. The damn problem is it's our grandfathers who went around the block on this subject, learned the lesson, and we think our grandfathers and fathers were dumb. Mm -hmm. And they weren't. They knew exactly what was coming down. This stuff was handled, mm. and sometimes very roughly, old Jan Smuts in South Africa bombed his own white miners. He bombed them with the Air Force. Mm. Okay, That's how adamant he was about stopping communism. Now, that was a bit rough, but mm. nevertheless. And you saw other pretty intense actions around the world. But somehow it was deemed not cool because... Hitler was also so much against communism. So if Hitler was against communism, then communism must be good, hey? Hmm. Well, the logic? But but the point was that uh, Hitler was a fascist, (laughs) which uh, the difference between communists and fascists is fascists are national socialists and communists are international socialists. It's pretty simple. (laughs) They didn't like each other because they were both trying to accomplish the same thing, and that was worldwide control. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, Dan, there's my picture. Your problem is not China. Your problem is not Russia. Your problem is not Iran. Mm -hmm. Uh, Who was it that said, I've seen the face of the enemy, and he is us? Yeah, that was Pogo. (laughs) Pogo. <laughs> I love it. Uh, Harry, you are such a brilliant uh, individual. I love you as a friend. I love you as a as a guest on this program. We have so much fun talking about this stuff. We've got to do it more often. We really do. But you are absolutely right. And incidentally, do you know where the first uh, communist, organized communist movement was in the United States? No. It was in Butte, Montana in 1906, okay? 1906, and it was because they were trying to form a workers' party union in Butte, Montana in the mines, and it was 1906. There you go. Yeah. So always it, something – the Romans said always something new out of Africa, and it seems like in the U.S. you're saying always something new out of Montana. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. 
But I have to tell you, I cannot. Uh, let Let's do this again a lot sooner. I it, there's no way we uh, we should just get together once every six months or once a year. We need to do this a lot more often. I just love talking to you, uh, Dan. Uh, it's fun with you. And uh, uh, to to your viewers and listeners, you see, he's nice to me now, but then when we're off the air, he beats up on me with George Bush. <laughs> <laughs> well. I, I know that there's a lot of snakes out there, and I just like whacking their heads off. <laughs> anyway, Harry, thank you so much for being our guest. And incidentally, your book, Amabulu, I highly recommend it. Uh, it is a bit of a long read. Uh, is 635 you pages. It's not it, a bit of a long read. It's a hell of a long read. It's a hell of a long read, but it's worth the effort to to read it because I have to tell you, it was absolutely uh, a, an eye-opener for me. I've, of course, been a supporter of South Africa for a very long time, uh, long before Mandela was there because uh, I also share that uh, a common uh, I guess I would call it a spiritual heritage. I'm a Dutch Reformed. Mm -hmm. uh, I was uh, baptized in the Dutch Reformed Church. So, um, so I. <laughs> yep. So we are brothers, brothers from another mother. All right. Well, uh, thank. Yeah. I want to thank our listeners and our viewers for joining us for connecting the dots again, Harry. I want to thank you. You're a wonderful guest as always. Thank you. And uh, please join us again on Sunday afternoon. From the lakes of Minnesota to the hills of Tennessee. Across the plains of Texas, oh, from sea to shining sea, from Detroit down to Houston, New York to L.A., where there's pride in every American heart, and it's time we stand and say. Today